This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Have you had trouble with this? Most people have. Sleepless nights, insomnia. We're talking with a sleep expert. Also talking about the rates of COVID on the rise. Do we blame the kids? And what about those kids? Do you want them? Well, what about contraception access? A new campaign is looking to fund that for all women and those with a uterus. How about finding the perfect match in a pandemic? You think it's hard? Well, it's a lot easier with Annie Cranfeld, the Matchmaker Club. And we're talking all about them. Those people, you know, you've been in bed with them, you've worked for them, you've lived with them. The narcissists. I'm Maureen McGrath, and the Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. My next guest has changed the way professional sports teams and 24-7 workplaces manage their sleep and fatigue to optimize performance. His risk, his fatigue management systems use state-of-the-art knowledge and technology. They've proven to be incredibly successful. His clients have included everybody from the Department of Defense to Harvard Medical School and major corporations and transportation companies, not to mention national hockey leagues and football leagues as well. He has a wealth of knowledge about this particular issue and he deals in performance optimization in health and safety. He is the expert to connect with whether you are seeking information on improving worker safety or interested in boosting athletic performance through the art of sleep. My guest is Pat Byrne and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Pat. You've got a new book out, huh? Good evening, Maureen. Yeah, we certainly do. It launches on uh, Wednesday. It's pretty exciting. It's been a pretty long, drawn-out process. <laughs> and the name of the book is? Is uh, Inconvenient Sleep, uh, Why Teams Win and Lose. So it's about um, the, it's a sense of ostensibly about athletes, and there's a lot of examples about the difficulty athletes have with sleep and, and uh, with some of the research and gadgets that they use and that sort of business. But there's really a lot of core information there for everybody that sleeps or has trouble sleeping. And, and so many people have difficulty sleeping. In fact, I advised a few people in my life to tune in <laughs> tonight to listen to the sleep advice. Um, we're also, you've been so generous uh, as to offer a uh, book to our listeners. So if somebody would like to win a book coming out on Wednesday, the number to call is one 877 So uh, what, uh, a lot of people have difficulty falling asleep. Some people have difficulty staying asleep. Others wake early. Some have dreams that, they're, that drive them crazy. Um, why do people have so many sleep issues? It's interesting. So sleep is a, a critical brain function. So it's not just something we do. And it's important to keep in mind because our brains are a pretty complex structure. And, and it can be influenced by many, many different things. For example, there are probably 90 or 100 different biological sleep disorders. Uh, everything from sleep apnea to restless leg syndrome, um, insomnia. And so... You know, there are sort of biological things that are going on inside your body that can cause you to not sleep well. Then there is mental health. And uh, what we say in the book is, you know, you can't have a conversation about mental health without having a conversation about sleep and vice versa. 
And so, you know, even mild stress can have a huge impact on your sleep. And certainly with, you know, the COVID stuff that's going on, that has a huge impact on people. So we have to deal with that. There are organic diseases, everything from diabetes, um, you know, physical injuries, all of which can affect your sleep, things like diet, lifestyle. So there is a huge basket of things that can go wrong that can upset your sleep. I have a call. Uh, I have a caller, Pat. Just um, sure. I have Daryl from Edmonton on the line. Hi, Daryl. Hi. How are you guys? Fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. You got a question? So, yeah, I just wanted <laughs> to uh, ask uh, the gentleman here: is is there any specific reason why um, I could? I have a tendency to fall asleep quickly, which isn't a problem, but I I tend to wake up every day at 3 a.m. and I have a hard time falling back asleep, regardless of the time I go to sleep at. I just want to remind the listeners that Pat Byrne is not a doctor, he's an author, um, but he does have an ex- extensive experience and knowledge in this area. So, Pat, what would you say to Daryl? You know what, I've heard that a lot, and I've worked a lot in the mining industry and studying sleep issues with, with miners, and, and, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I hear that issue a lot. And so some of it is age-dependent, some of it may depend on your uh, sleep environment. Um, you know, I've heard people say that to me, and I don't know where your circumstances are, but say that to me, and then they don't realize that there's a train that goes, you know, <laughs> at 3.30 in the morning, there's a train that goes down the street. That they're so used about it, they don't even think about it. So, um, and, and when we go, when we sleep anyways, our, we go into various sleep stages, and it may be that you're just waking up in a really light stage, um, and it, my experience and what I hear from all the medical professionals is that it's actually not a pretty serious problem if you can get right back to sleep again. I was so going to ask Daryl, Daryl, yeah. um, as the nurse here. Um, yeah, that was the one question. Can you fall back to sleep easily? And does it make you tired the next day? Uh, no, I can't fall asleep easily. In fact, it's like I'm wide awake until probably like 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and then I do fall asleep, but then the alarm goes off, and I'm extremely groggy the next day at work. Brutal. What do you say, Pat? Right. So some of the, I, I don't know how, you don't want to tell us how old you are, but there are, there are age things um, that can affect our, our sleep timing and, and waking up. And that the older we get, um, everything in our body starts to break, break down. I mean, our hair gets gray, and we, you know, we, you know uh, limbs start to hurt. Um, and, and the same with our sleep architecture, uh, the, what's going on in our brain while we sleep, that starts to break down as well. And, and what can um, he do about that? Is there anything in particular that he can do? Like, I know there's melatonin. Um, I don't know how much yeah. you physically exercise, Daryl, if you drink alcohol or coffee or tea before yeah. you go to bed. But is there anything right. in particular you'd yeah. advise, Pat? Yeah, I, I, what I do, if, it, if it's a persistent problem and it is causing them to be uh, tired or sleepy during the day, I would go get diagnosed. I mean, with all of the literally hundreds of things that can go wrong with your sleep, if they can pinpoint it, they can fix it. So at a sleep clinic. Right. Have you been to Um, a sleep clinic, Daryl? No, I haven't yet, but that's a great recommendation or suggestion. Might be time, yeah. Right. The other thing, Daryl, is is your bedroom really dark? And when I mean dark, I mean if you hold your hand up in front of you, like a foot from your face, if you can see your hand, it's not dark enough. So your sleep is, your, your brain decides when to sleep based on how much light you get exposed to, huh. right? And so if you're, you wake up and it's bright, or not necessarily, you know, 
sunlight in your bedroom, but it's light in there and you can see your hand a foot away from your face, then it's harder to get back to sleep. Now, now, why is it that someone like Daryl, and I don't know, Daryl, is your room really dark? Uh, I would say that my room is probably, I'd say it's pretty dark. I have, like, blackout curtains and stuff. Okay. And it's something okay. that's Perfect. kind of happened, like, I'm 38 now, so just really when I hit 34, 35. It's really not that age thing. Um, no, no, it's not. <laughs> so go to the sleep no, clinic, no, no, Daryl. But why can Daryl have blackout blinds and I can sleep uh, with a wide open curtain, wide open windows, staring practically at the sun because we have a southwest exposure and the sun is up till 1030 um, in our bedroom these, these days. Why does that not affect me at all? I sleep through the night, 8, 9, 10. I decide how many hours I want to sleep before I go to bed almost. So I'm like, I'm getting up at 10 tomorrow <laughs> right. or 6. Uh, you know what's, what's great? You know, I, I absolutely agree. And people have different – virtually everybody I talk to has a different experience with sleep. And that's because it is, as I said earlier, it is a critical brain function. And your brain decides what's important to you and what's not important to you. And then just one based last on, – Based qu- on everything, everything else that's going on in your life and in your brain, you, there, the brain needs to do certain things while you're sleeping. And it, it can do it for some people when it's apparently light out and with other people it needs to be completely dark. Interesting. One other quick question, anxiety, the number one mental illness in North America. Mm-hmm. Will that affect somebody's sleep and would you advise for them to get treatment for that issue or whatever's stressing them? You mentioned stress. Absolutely. And, and particularly uh, with covid Right. There's huge increases in uh, depression, you know, isolation issues um, and and stress. I mean, you know, there's, you know, things like just total disruption of people's daily lives and, you know, greater family and work stresses that are going on. Absolutely. Um, it's a great subject. So, I got to go to break, Pat. I'm sorry. Uh, no problem. It's a great subject and I'll ha- definitely have you back. Um, so the book is available for ebook pre-order at uh, Kobo and also on Amazon. It's available on August 18th and the book is Inconvenient Sleep, Why Teams Win and Lose, the crossover book, Melding Sleep Science, Sports and Humor. Pat, thank you so much. My pleasure, Maureen. Thanks. My next guest has been working on sexual and reproductive health issues for 10 years with the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada International Women's Health Program. She's worked all over the globe, most recently in Georgetown, Guyana, where she was legal officer for one of Guyana's leading LGBTQ plus advocacy organizations, the Society Against Sexual Orientation Discrimination. She is a co-founder and volunteer with Access BC Campaign. She joins us on the line from Victoria, BC, Her name is Devin Black, and we're going to talk about access or the issues that people face and the barriers when they try to access contraception. Good evening, Devin. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. People face a host of compounding barriers to to contraception, cost being one of them. What are some of the other barriers, especially in this pandemic, which I think the access has been, um, you know, impacted as well? Yeah, COVID-19 has had a huge impact on uh, people being able to access contraception. We've got a number of healthcare workers volunteering with our campaign who have talked about how um, COVID has really impeded people's ability to access contraception. At first, we had clinic closures. Now, sometimes if people are immunocompromised, they're worried about leaving the house, um, especially to go to a medical clinic. Um, and for people who already had barriers to contraception, like people in rural communities with less access to doctors or pharmacies, 
um, this is just one more thing that's making things hard in terms of getting access to contraception. And contraception is expensive, isn't it, for people? Yeah, it can be enormously expensive. Um, A copper IUD can cost hundreds of dollars. A hormonal IUD is also incredibly expensive. And even the birth control pill um, can be, you know, 20 bucks a month over the course of a year. That adds up. It, it, It certainly does. And the cost of that falls squarely on the woman or people with a uterus. Now, there are programs that offer free prescription contraception to increase, which will increase access and affordability uh, for people. And um, why is that important? And what is the Access BC, British Columbia, campaign all about? Yeah, so there there are definitely some programs in British Columbia that do offer some coverage for contraception care for people who um, are low income and, and otherwise would have difficulty accessing it. But one of the reasons that the Access BC campaign exists uh, is because we think that access to contraception should be universally funded um, by the province for everyone. Um, and and right why now, is that? Why do you feel that? Well, so the programs that exist right now, uh, for one thing, have a lot of holes. So there's a lot of types of contraception that aren't covered. So copper IUDs are um, not covered. The NuvaRing is not covered. Um, Lolo, which is a low-dose hormonal pill, isn't covered. And in some cases, for people, those are the only option that works for them. But even for people who aren't low-income... Um, We know from other places that have implemented universal contraception coverage programs that it's a money saver and it also has a significant impact on people's quality of life. Um, And does it improve health outcomes? It absolutely does um, for parents and also for kids. Um, for children, because when people are able to plan their pregnancies um, and really make sure that they're falling at the best time for them and uh, that they've got the means that they need to make sure that they're able to have a healthy pregnancy, um, outcomes for everyone are better from a healthcare standpoint. And can the governments actually save money? I know I've done some advocacy around um, women's health in the past, and it, uh, you know, I presented them with a, a business proposal that was actually going to save them money. They thought it was a sneeze in terms of budget, of, uh, in terms of the whole overall budget. Women don't care about this kind of thing until they need the medication themselves. And then they're like, why isn't this covered? Um, but governments often, even though they see the savings and, the, and that the cost is very high, they're not interested. So um, how can this save governments money? So Options for Sexual Health did a study in 2010 um, where they estimated what the cost would be to implement a program like this in British Columbia. And they determined that a program like this would probably save about $95 million a year, and it would cost about half that. So the savings involved are quite significant, and that's just talking about direct medical costs. Um, in the same study, Options for Sexual Health estimated that every $1 that was spent on contraceptive support could save as much as $90, 9-0, in public expenditures on social supports. So there's a lot of money to be saved uh, by implementing universal contraception coverage for sure. It, there is, and you have the evidence, and you've been working on this th- since 2017, which is when uh, Access BC uh, was, was born, if you will, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, then why, why aren't governments listening? It's our money. What's the deal? <laughs> um, it's well, my that's, money. That's a question that we've been asking uh, governments for the past three years. And unfortunately, it it hasn't really been a priority. Um, that's especially frustrating because last year, uh, 
it was actually included in budget recommendations that the government should be implementing a program to, at the very least, investigate universal contraception coverage for the province. So this has been on the radar for a long time, um, and, and the time for this program has come. Absolutely, it has. Thank you so much, Devin. Uh, where can people get more information about AccessBC's campaign? Uh, well, they can visit our website at accessbc.org. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for the information. Best of luck with this. And, you know, sometimes when politicians are overseeing healthcare kind of things, you know, the twain doesn't meet. <laughs> Never <laughs> the, the twain shall meet, but hopefully it shall for you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. He's a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. And he is on the line with me right now. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. So we so we did it. You know what? You've been encouraging me to get out of my basement. Um, we did it. So uh, my partner and I decided we would go out and check out the physical distancing protocols. Ooh. So Anita, who um, who you respect, um, I'm sure more than you respect me. Uh, we went out to um, we went out to English Bay and. Um, we did it for the first time this afternoon, and I have to say, I'm terribly, terribly impressed. Not only were the people on the beach um, physically distancing, quite, quite, quite distances that were safe, but then when we went into the restaurants and the beverage establishments, um, the, all the staff were just amazingly professional, and they they kept us um, in in what, what what should be deemed as um, safe protocols like it, it was amazing Maureen I have to say I'm quite, I was quite came out of it feeling quite um, blessed to be in in a region where people are uh, understanding what the rules are and doing their best to abide by them that's fantastic I had a proud moment today too which I'm going to tell you about but um, in that picture now you did say that you took your mask off very briefly just for the photo op well, well, you know, given how much makeup I have to put on, I just didn't think it was appropriate that I cover it up with the mask. No, I, no, I. Um, so what it is is that the rules are that if you're consuming any services like a beverage or a meal, you can take your mask off. But I didn't want to want people to think that I wasn't abiding by Maureen's rules and exactly. and uh, and wandering around the restaurant without a mask on. I did have a mask on, but I did take it off just so that I could be identified. And I noted that the sunglasses, the shades were on the whole time, but I was looking at well, the picture. Well, you, you got to have the look. you got to have the look, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I knew the look. So. Absolutely. Um, looking like a Hollywood movie star there, or Bollywood movie star. Now, um, you were dining outside, is that correct? Yeah, we were outside, and it's actually interesting, Maureen. We wandered down, we went down to Davy and Denman for all our colleagues, um, uh, friends, and listeners across the country. This is in Vancouver, close to the beach, so the Denman Davy area. And so we parked, and then we walked down, and um, we were frankly looking for anything that would um, serve us food and beverages. Um, but we ended up being in a place um, that was close to the beach. Um, but but you're right; they did have a immediately on um, a, a part of the restaurant that was. Um, Closest to the closest to the beach, and then there was one that was uh, part of the sitting area that was a little bit further away, um, but but you could definitely see the water, um, so it was very close. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is great. And, um, you know, I also want to tell a little story. I typically don't like to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> but one well, of my... Well, but, do, but do tell. <laughs> you, you like hearing about you. Uh, please. It is all about me, after all. At the end of the day, um, <laughs> the proud mother moment, uh, when one of my children, one of the 12 kids, <laughs> was going to be going to a friend's summer house. And... Um, um, island hopping, basically. <laughs> and so we we went by on our watercraft and um, I said, you know, so-and-so is going to be there. So let's, you know, pop in and say hello or pop by and say hello. So we did. And there were, I have to say, so many kids, okay, on the on the do- on the de- on the dock, um, you know, on the patio, uh, and I was a little, you know, taken aback. They were outside, and then we tried to find, <laughs> which is typical. I'm trying to find my children; <laughs> they can't be located, and so I actually didn't see, didn't think I saw this particular child of mine there. And so we carried on to our destination, and then later on in texting, um, I said, "Didn't you go to so and so's?" And this particular child said, "No, too many kids there." I didn't want I didn't want to go even though it was outside. I cannot tell you the pride that I felt after she, uh, this particular child was screaming at me for not well screaming at me via text for not answering my text messages but um I've I'm not leaving anything to my children. I've been very clear about that. I'm spending everything in this lifetime and um <laughs> but I might actually put this one in for an inheritance. Yeah, leave, I was going to leave that one a little bit. A little bit. More, that's more, it. But more, but more important from my perspective is, you know, if they could become a nurse or a doctor someday, I would be so impressed. Right, exactly. But you know what? I actually have to say I was really grateful, very happy. And I thought, you know what? Not all kids, not all youth, not all juveniles, not all adolescents, uh, not all young people are not social distancing, are not living by the rules. There are kids that are out there that are doing this. I have to say also, on the way to the studio, I passed a bus. It was mostly people, I'm going to say, you know, it looked over the age of 50, I would say to the 80s, and nobody had a mask on. It wasn't that full, but not one person was wearing a mask. And then the next bus stop, I noticed there were about 10 people at that bus stop. And there were two people with masks getting on the bus. And they were people in their probably late 20s, early 30s. So we're hearing a lot these days across the country in different provinces that that the kids, and we're seeing a rise in the cases in ages 20 to 39. But we're hearing that it's all about the kids. But it is it all about the decisions that the kids are making or is it some of the mixed messages that they're getting except for this one child of mine? <laughs> yeah, that, that one child. Actually, if, if you don't want them, I'll adopt them because um, I could definitely <laughs> take another one. Um, no, no, but Maureen, you're raising a really important point, which is that you know a lot of us when watching those video clips on TV have been really coming at it from a bit of a scolding, you know, why are young people not in, not um, listening? But 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 on your own um, television, uh, sorry, your own radio program on CKNW, um, there's been a lot of um, discussion around what what are we saying to young people? And young people have basically been saying that yes, a lot of people are being impacted by COVID-19, but. But a lot of young people are also at transition points in life right now. They're in that age group where you think about weddings and graduations, um, study plans, travel plans. And Maureen, it's interesting because when you're talking about the restaurant that uh, my partner and I went to this evening, one of the graduates was from university and he said, I didn't expect that I would be graduating and my parents wouldn't be there for my graduation. 
right? Mm-hmm. So the younger generation has actually taken a pretty big hit. And it's easy, it's easy morning for people like you and myself to waggle our fingers and say, don't party, don't go out, don't do these things. But, you know, we went through a period of that phase when there were milestones in our lives and and we got to celebrate all those things that this that this generation isn't able to celebrate now because of what's going on with COVID-19 right now. That's exactly right. Yeah. And they're hit by the job market um, big oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's absolutely. And, and so even the waiter that, ser- that served us, and he was absolutely amazing, and he said to me, he said, I graduated, and I thought I was going to travel for a few months and then come back and apply for jobs. And he said, that just isn't available right now. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think for those of us who, like I said, waggle our fingers sometimes and say, you know, why are people partying? Why are young people not listening? I think we have to understand from their perspective, they're being hit pretty hard. Maureen, the other aspects are what you already commented on, which is that there, we have been not great at some messaging out, right? So when you think about things like going back to school, we've told young people, you know, stay in your bubble. And, and we've said this in provinces across the country in, in Canada, you know, stay in your bubble. But then all of a sudden we're saying, you know what, we want you to go out and go back to high school or university. And now we're going to expect you to be in a group that's a bigger size. Well, people, but young people are saying, but, but then am I at risk for bringing things home back to my parents and my grandparents? You know, all of a sudden now that message is a bit mixed. Even of restaurants and nightclubs, and I know there's been a lot of um, um, exposure on, on television networks and news programs about young people being out at nightclubs, but a lot of young people are saying, if all of a sudden now you're saying we can go out to nightclubs or we can go out to restaurants, we're going to go. So is it wrong for us to go there or should it be a problem that the restaurants and the nightclubs are having, which is why are they letting us be there or to interact in a way? Should those nightclubs not be shut down or should they not be open in the first place? And why are you opening them at all if there's a risk that are associated with them? And so really what young people are saying is that's a, that's a hugely mixed message that you're sending to us, which is that, yes, all of a sudden we're, we're allowed to go to nightclubs, um, and, but, but you're asking us to be in groups of six or whatever the group uh, rule is, but, but, but is that fair? And then finally, around wearing a mask, Maureen, and I'll, and I'll admit, Mia Coppa, is that when, when we were talking about masks, and you and I talked about this early on in, in, in March and April, we'd originally said masks don't help people. And so we said, you know, wearing masks aren't helpful. But then the science changed, Maureen. And then we said, yes, go ahead and put on masks. But what the young people are saying is we we're kind of too lenient, too flexible in some of those recommendations. Should we have been more firm? So when people are in groups, whether it's indoors or outdoors, about what we should be doing about masks, and there's a lot of mixed messages. So I think the the, the conclusion, Maureen, is that um, a, a lot of young people are saying, we're happy to abide by the rules, but be consistent in the rules that you're giving us. Absolutely. And, and you know, the thing about the masks has changed so much from masks <clears throat> do not help. You know, you, you heard... Um, politicians say masks do not help and then oh wear a mask and then it, and now the politicians are saying well it's actually not the most effective thing physical distancing and hand washing are more important so it's kind of like um you know and then the other thing is you know kids are going back to elementary schools and high schools uh in the fall in in these provinces across western canada and um you know it's going to be near normal daily operations with added health measures and so it's like well why can't we hang out outside but we can actually go into the classroom. So I completely understand their confusion. 
Uh, but tonight, hopefully you'll stay awake with me because we're talking about something that has hit so many people during this pandemic. Not just young people, people of all ages, people who maybe got out of a relationship and we're hoping to get into a new one. People who prematurely got into a new relationship because of the pandemic. But was it a perfect match? Joining me on the line to talk about the perfect match in a pandemic is Annie Cranfield, owner and professional matchmaker at The Matchmaker Club, Vancouver. Good evening, Annie. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Ah, my pleasure. I'm so glad you could join me because this is such an important subject. I cannot tell you just <laughs> how many people tell me their little pandemic love story or, or pandemic heartbreak story. Um, yeah. You know, it depends on what it is. I was speaking to somebody uh, this week, and these are all professional colleagues, quite frankly, <laughs> and friends, because <laughs> um, my colleagues are my friends too. But anyhow... Um, I mix business with pleasure, full disclosure. Uh, but uh, a colleague friend said to me, yeah, I moved in with them. You know, it was a little premature. I'm not sure I would have had there not been a pandemic, you know, figuring it out. He's not the perfect match, but, you know, he'll do for now. At least I'm getting, you know what. Anyway, was her <laughs> attitude. <laughs> and if you have a question about matchmaking, give us a call. one 399 So this is tough, and, and you deal with this on the daily. So tell me. What's going on out there? Well, it's definitely interesting dating during a pandemic, uh, but it's not impossible. Um, I think right now, speaking to what you were saying, people are, um, you know, taking it more seriously dating one person. It's definitely not the time to be a serial dater. So we are seeing people settle into relationships a lot sooner than they would have in the past. I think the quarantine process really had people thinking and doing a lot of, um, you know, intro searching of why they're still single. And I think people are also looking like, oh, if there is a second wave, I definitely don't want to be alone. So definitely seeing a lot of people settle into relationships a lot sooner than they would have. Wow, the little pandemic push to get uh, love back in your life. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. Fantastic. So how, you know, I, I've heard this quite a bit. Um, now's not the time to be serial dating. We've heard that from politicians. We've heard that from medical experts. We're hearing that from you. Um, are people abiding by that? And, and how easy is that since we were such serial daters before this pandemic? Well, I think that serial dater continues to be a serial dater. I just hope that they're being uh, a little bit more responsible about it. So I would say, uh, you know, right now I'm definitely suggesting a video call. So FaceTime or even just phone conversations seem to be a norm right now as where before that used to be the norm after you actually met, after you met face to face. You would have the initial face to face. Uh, meeting and then the FaceTiming and the phone conversations would come afterwards. Now it's flipped. So I'm suggesting uh, FaceTime or phone conversations, really taking the time to, you know, explore whether the connection is there or not before uh, moving on to a face-to-face or a social distancing, you know, encounter, I guess. But definitely the serial data continues to be so, I just think, in a more responsible way. Let's hope. Um, are people scared? Are oh, people... Sorry. It's, a, it's a small emergency here. <laughs> yeah. 
fine. Up the fire. <laughs> yeah, no problem. We have our AED. We are resuscitating right now. We are singing, <laughs> staying alive. Okay. Yeah. We're giving CPR. Um, uh, so, you know, people have to, I mean, I think they must be stuck between, you know, really wanting to meet somebody thinking like, how long is this pandemic going to go on? You know, I mean, a vaccine yeah. is only going to be a tool in, in the tool chest. It's not certainly going to cure everything or, or therapeutics. So, you know, we're, we're just looking to, to help the situation, but you know, how, how, um, can, you know, com- what's the word I'm looking for, confused or, you know, torn between a new lover versus, um, you know, do I want to place myself or my family, perhaps they have children, at mm-hmm. risk for COVID-19 by meeting somebody or somebody who maybe is blasé about, uh, you know, social distancing and hand washing? Yeah, so that's actually interesting that I've seen with matchmaking. You know, I, I usually have all the information beforehand. I do all of the questioning, you know, how do you feel about social distancing walks? Um, you know, do you require somebody to wear a mask? Do you yourself wear a mask? So I do a lot of the, um, you know, exploration of what they feel comfortable with before. So it's been interesting because the new element of matching uh, clients as well, I'm not just matching lifestyles and chemistry. I'm also matching how they take the pandemic. You know, do they take it seriously or are they blasé? Because you would think um, you know, it's, it's obviously you can't match those two people. <laughs> if one is really blasé about it and the other one takes it seriously, then it's a complete disconnect. Right. So, now, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. And that comes up, you know, how it, it's a little bit different when it comes to going on dates right now, because you do have to question yourself, you know. Am I putting my family at risk by going on this date? And that's why I suggest making sure that you have that FaceTime, you have those phone conversations, making sure that you absolutely want to and need to meet this person. Um, And also having the conversation beforehand, you know, how do they want to proceed? Do you want to do a social distancing walk? Um, You know, even some people say maybe they feel comfortable enough going over to their house. So it's definitely a little bit different right now and something to consider for sure, the safety, your safety and the safety of your family. Right. And, you know, for those people who are listening now and don't know what a matchmaker is, um, what, you know, how does it actually work? How does this matchmaker club work? What what would they uh, do to become involved in a matchmaker club? Your matchmaker club, of course. So my clients tend to be just, um, you know, successful professionals that lack time. So they're used to outsourcing. They don't have the time to do online dating or maybe they've tried it. But, you know, anybody that I speak to that we're talking about online dating, they go, oh, my gosh, it's like a full time job. Job. And I go, exactly. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Right. So it's usually somebody that lacks the time or is just completely disenchanted with the whole online dating process. So I really come in and help them with a customized package. You know, I'm, I'm a person, I'm not a computer algorithm. So I'm actually able to understand better through a conversation, what they're looking for. And from there, I look exclusively for them and what they want. And you have a cache of people, if you will, that, um, I mean, I know I've seen your networking ability. (laughs) I've seen it in person, (laughs) real live. And it was like, yes. Um, So, you know, do you have a selection of, of, you know, people so that do they join by a membership? Um, So I have a database um, of, you know, these are people that I've personally picked for clients or past clients or somebody that I thought 
could potentially be a match for somebody. So I have my database of men and women. They're not necessarily paying clients. They're just wanting to be taken into consideration in case that I need a match. But of course, that's not taking a proactive approach on your dating life. You know, it's no guarantee that I'm going to call you. But of course, I'll keep you in mind if I meet somebody or have a client that would be a perfect match for you. But if you are proactive about your love life, then yes, you would hire me and I would look exclusively for you. Most likely, I would already know somebody. It depends totally on what it is that you're looking for. You know, I've had some clients be very, very, very specific on their search. And then, yes, I would have to then, you know, think about how I will match them. Absolutely. And, you know, I know, uh, I mean, I've sent patients to you and you have successfully matched them, uh, which has been fantastic. So I I appreciate your skill. Um, For the person out there who's sitting alone in their home, um, looking at, uh, you know, keeping their bubble small, not really out heading to the bars or the restaurants or typical places where they may have met somebody, what uh, do you offer them in terms of hope in a pandemic and in terms of finding that perfect match and passion again? I mean, even just a night of passion. (laughs) Can they do that? I mean, something. What can you offer them? Hope. (laughs) Hope, absolutely. I think this is definitely the time to actually consider dating because more than anything, everyone right now is definitely considering their lifestyle, their life. I mean, there's people doing complete career changes. It's definitely a time where people want a connection because, you know, like I said before, it's this are we going to have another quarantine? And I definitely don't want to spend it alone because it was very difficult. You know, during March, um, I was doing a lot of coaching uh, sessions because people were kind of freaking out a little bit about their love lives. You know, we took all the distractions away. You're now working from home. You know, no one's going out. So you're really left on your own to take a look at yourself and your life and realize, you know, I do want to change this and I need to prioritize my love life. So that's the first thing that I would say. If you are single and are looking to meet somebody, then you have to prioritize it and do something about it. So, you know, whether it's hiring a matchmaker or going online, um, you know, like you said, it, it is very difficult right now to go and meet somebody. And I can commend anybody that is doing their part and, t- you know, taking social distancing serious. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's many different ways that we're able to meet people right now and definitely matchmaking or going online. Um, I also do have clients that I help with their online dating profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also an option that I that I have. You have so many options uh, for people. Thank you so much, Annie Cranfield. And for people who want to get in touch with you and join your Matchmaker Club? Uh, At thematchmakerclub.com, and that is the same handle for Instagram and Facebook. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for all of your information. Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Thank you. Same to you. Everybody loves them. They they charm everyone. They're so nice. They go to the nth degree on everything. And then all of a sudden, they reveal themselves. They are the narcissists. We've worked for them. We've lived with them. We've slept with them. We've been with them. We can't stand them. Initially, we love them because they are so charming. But oftentimes, they will easily condemn those that they previously cherished. And then that dark light 
may shine on you at some point as well. I deal with this so often in my clinical practice, my head could spin. And one of the biggest issues that I find with women, and it's exactly the same story, or men, when men are with narcissists too, because it's not just men who are narcissists, women are narcissists too. Uh, they can be, but it's actually more, the percentage is higher. There are more, more male narcissists than uh, female narcissists. And so narcissists typically hoard attention. They interrupt conversations. They always steer it back to themselves. They're more concerned with their own feelings than someone else's. And their theme song happens to be, you know, enough about me. Let's get back to me. Um, and so if you are with a narcissist in a pandemic, it must be an absolute nightmare for you um, because it's so difficult to relate to narcissists and it takes a long time for people to figure out that they are in a relationship with a narcissist in part because, you know, everybody wants to feel emotionally safe. They want to be able to be themselves, just speak their mind, who they are, say what they mean. And they, the narcissist will get easily offended and um, they, they get highly insulted. They can fly into rages very simply. But you know what? Because at the beginning of the relationship, it has been so amazing. They've been so charming. They have been so kind. They've been so generous to you. It's been all about you initially. You're wonderful. You're incredible. Here's this great job title. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to buy you this jewelry. They are so flattering to you. And, and, and you know, people are really sweating up off their feet. But that quickly, and I have to uh, underscore the word quickly because this, what is seemingly this benign romance, this too good to be true, and it is, can rapidly deteriorate and become malignant and it destroys emotional safety. So you, if you disagree with your partner at all, it can actually result in rage. Living with or dating narcissist feels like you have to tiptoe around minefields and you are constantly on guard not to set them off. And in fact, you have no clue as to what is going to set them off because narcissists take everything so personally because they have this sort of bravado. They have this grand confidence or what appears to be this grandiose confidence and bravado. But actually what is hidden beneath is this profound self-loathing. And they have to be shored up constantly by persistent external praise. This is their gasoline. Their fuel is admiration and they need you to reflect their magnificence, their amazement because they don't feel it themselves and they are constantly seeking that from you. They have picked you. They have chosen you. Being that perfect is exhausting even for them, but it's more particularly exhausting for you. After a while, you become an extension of them. Your needs are their needs. Their needs are your needs. You lose sight of who you are, of where you begin and where you end and where they begin and where they end. 
you become so busy shoring up that narcissist, worrying about if you say this, if you say that, if you're going to flatter them, compliment them, if that's going to be enough, if you actually express concern or fear or something, they are actually going to get highly offended. You are going to get depleted over the long term and you likely are going to effectively disappear. You may end up with anxiety. You don't know how to be and no matter what you try, isn't right. And as you are building up your partner, they are busy tearing you down. They need, you are the mirror. They are looking back at themselves when they are looking at you. And this can be so psychologically damaging. And this is the one thing that I really wanted to point out is that initially in these relationships, the person that someone is in the relationship with was so incredible. As I said, they were swept up off their feet. It was too good to be true. They'd never met anybody like this before. They are everything they ever dreamed of because you ever dreamed of because the narcissist has sized you up. They've seen what part of you is missing, the part of you that needs nurturing, the part of you that needs care. They've seen your vulnerability and they exemplify that on steroids. And so that's what they target. And so then very shortly thereafter, it doesn't take too long. It can be weeks to months. And all of a sudden it's one little bit of information that that you've given them and they just explode that little bit of information and create a massive uh, issue around it for you. And you're like, I just told them that little thing. And then they've just really exaggerated it. You're constantly trying to figure it out. It is a psychological injury. And what happens is you hang on to this fantasy that if you shore them up enough, everything will go back to the way that it was. I promise you, it will not. It will never go back to the way it was. In real life, narcissists need to tear other people down in order to build themselves up. Even when you are in the new relationship and the charm is just turned on, on full bore, you may need to watch, you must watch for clues that all may not be well. You know, a couple of times I've seen patients in my clinical practice who are in relationships and they've seen these signs and I'm like, You know what? I usually see people on the other end of this, those who have been psychologically injured and are trying to recover from it. You can prevent this issue. You are seeing the signs and it has nothing to do with smart people. Lots of smart people actually end up in relationships with narcissists. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.